This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and uh, joining me, as always, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith, who today is once again, ladies and gentlemen, enjoying the muggy Florida weather on his back porch. <laughs> it is definitely muggy. That is correct. All you, can, you can enjoy the serenading pool pump in the background. There you go. And if you hear any tires whining, you'll know that, that Pastor Sam lives close to the turnpike. So that's uh, occasionally he's serenaded by the 18-wheelers going down the turnpike. So we're coming into a series here at our church where we're talking about revival, the subject of revival. We, the series is called When God Moves, but we're taking up the subject of revival here on the Out of Water podcast as well and talking about what revival is and looking at some examples of revival from the scriptures. So let's begin at the beginning and let me ask Sam if I came to you and said, hey, revival is a weird word, man. It's one of them. It's one of them two dollar church words. You know, it's like you, know, you, mm-hmm. you got your you got your 50 cent church words and you got your two dollar church words. So I come to you <laughs> and I say revival. Sam, are you putting a tent in the parking lot? Are, are you and Billy Graham renting the stadium? What is revival, man? So revival, I like this definition that I came across earlier today. There's a guy named J. Edwin Orr, and he defined revival as the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. And so I think if I'm describing revival, and you know that word is unfortunate because it comes with so many of those connotations that you just hinted at. You mm-hmm. know, you know, with with a pastor waving the ten pound Bible, you know, with a tent. You know, Laura and I, we vacation in North Carolina and North Georgia. We like staying in cabin rentals, and you'll drive through these kind of remote areas, and you'll see signs that say, you know, January twenty eighth, you know, revival six thirty p.m., and you're like. Did somebody invite the spirit to come and like the spirit's got this on the calendar and knows <laughs> when when he's going to move among the people? That That is not what we're talking about here. So the revival is when the spirit of God comes and animates uh, through the word of God and empowers inside the people of God to live lives in a manner that's conformed to Christ and that generates the fruit of the spirit. Um, and it's a powerful move that can come in an individual, it can come in a group, it can come in a in an entire church, city, nation. Um, and so obviously what we're praying for is that God would move on a massive scale. Um, but that revival, you know, we pray it begins with us. Would it be fair for me to say to people that revival may look different to different people? Like there could be, uh, you know, that it's not necessarily one thing, or is it more homogenous than that? It's like, if, if you and I both experience revival, would we recognize it from each other's description of it? Or is it just personal? Like, I know revival when I feel it. <laughs> well, I, I think that there are some things about revival that are always going to be the same. Okay. Um, and what I would say is the same as there is a deep, deep 
hunger for more and more and more of Jesus. You, mm, that's you're good. just you're you're so in love with Him. You want more of Him. You want more of His Word, and that just begins to overwhelm you. You know, and and I'd say one of the things that we can err in, especially when we're going into a series on revival and we're looking at all these past revivals that have happened throughout history. You know, there's there's a tendency that where we want to get jealous of that. You know, we haven't experienced anything like that, but you read of how the Spirit moves and everybody's overwhelmed with joy and worship and peace and, you know, the bars shut down and the prisons, you know, are emptied out because it just changes the culture. It's just the, these stunning movements of God and we're like, well, we've never seen that. And and you can start idolizing, you know, okay, so I'm just, I'm going to try really hard to be joyful. I'm going to bring revival, or I'm going to try really hard to be obedient, and I'm going to chase after this, and I'm going to do it in my own effort. And that is idolatry, actually. Um, the core of, and this is one of the things that no matter where you go, all revivals have this in common. Revival comes when people take hold of the beauty of Jesus Christ and the all-satisfying nature of Jesus Christ, and that then yields all the things that we talk about in revivals. It's, it's grabbing hold of Jesus and, and a real sense and, and getting an impression of his grace and his love and his forgiveness and the value of it that then leads to that joy mm-hmm. and that peace and that obedience and that incredible worship. It doesn't come vice versa. You can't chase after joy to get revival. You, you, you take hold of Christ and it brings all the other things are byproducts of getting him. Mm. You know, and so that is the common thing in, in revival. It all starts with Christ. Mm. There's a phenomena, I think, that takes place in the lives of, of many, if not most, uh, Christians in that when we first come to faith, um, we have this hunger that you describe, this mm-hmm. intense desire to immerse ourselves in the things of, the, of Christ and things of the Lord. It's like we just can't get enough of hearing other people talking about mm-hmm. Jesus and talking about Jesus ourselves and reading God's word and that to me, that's how the life, the Christian life begins. I mean, that's that mm-hmm. in totally. That's that rush of new life, and that's how it kind of begins. I think when it's a when it's a genuine, you know, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you, and you've encountered the grace of Jesus Christ for the first time. You are just ready to go, mm-hmm. and as time goes on, you know, things happen and things distract you, and the and that's the position you find yourself in where revival is really needed. It's when you've been in it a while where you grow, you grow stale. You know, you don't, you don't appreciate the holiness of God as much. Grace becomes less amazing. You're less, you're less grieved by your sin because you're comfortable with the idea of forgiveness, right? Mm. And so the more you grow comfortable in your faith, you know, I, this past Friday we had prayer time and they were talking about repentance and grief. And I was thinking, man, why do I not? grieve over the fact, you know, over my sin more. And it's like I, I try to will myself to repent. I mean, you can you can repent and go through the motions, but and like in today's passage we're going to talk about Nehemiah 8, you know, the where the, in this passage they're going to end up grieving over their sin to where they're weeping. Like it's been a long time since I have felt that and I can't just will that. Right. You know, it, it it is something that is supernaturally prodded, where the spirit moves inside of you, 
and you begin to realize just how magnificent God is and how much he deserves from you. And it, the thing that breaks you and pushes you in the direction of revival is not you know, looking at this holy, magnificent God who has done so much for you and has blessed you in such incredible ways. To, to it's, it's, not a, it's not that he's pushing you down in shame. It's that he's all of that, and he still pursues you, and he still loves you, it, it just makes you want more of him. Mm. It's you're not guilted into obedience; you're allured by his kindness. So that's what revival is. I mean, I, I think that's a. I think we've done a pretty good job of, of defining it there. Um, let's look at the example of it. Now, you you mentioned Nehemiah eight, but ra- before we get into chapter eight, can you give us some sense of a little bit of a historical perspective here? Because if we just started with Nehemiah eight. I don't think that people would appreciate just how remarkable the scene that's described in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah's book really is, unless they've kind of been walked through a little bit of, the, of what came before that. So tell us who Nehemiah was and what was going on. Yeah, so, so Nehemiah, just as we're working through a timeline, Nehemiah, this, what we're going to read about today happens in 445 BC, so 445 years before Jesus is born. But if you go back even further to a thousand years before Jesus is born, you have King David who comes to Jerusalem and he makes Jerusalem the capital city of the Israelites. Israel is ascending to this glorious kingdom. David's son Solomon is going to build the temple on top of the mount, and from there forward, the kingdom of Israel becomes this wonderful consummation of all these promises that had come before it, its glory, it's expanding its borders. Everything seems like, you know, God is just blessing them at every turn. Mm -hmm. But then they turn wicked and their kingdom divides. And you've got northern tribes and southern tribes and they're feuding and the northern tribes get conquered to where there's only the southern tribes left and the city of Jerusalem is in those southern tribes and eventually the Lord sends this flurry of prophets, right? He's sending flurries of prophets to Jerusalem saying, please turn, you guys have gotten so wicked. I mean, they were doing things like sacrificing their children in fires to these pagan gods. They were treating the poor with no mercy. They just become utterly gross and these prophets were saying, turn back to the Lord, soften your hearts, And they refused. They killed the prophets that were sent to them. And so finally the Lord says, okay, if this is what you want, if you want want a kingdom without me, I'll depart. And as he departs, the Babylonians, he sends the Babylonians in 586 B.C., they come into Jerusalem. So you've got 400 years of this kingdom heritage in Jerusalem at this point. And the Babylonians come and they knock down every wall every building, all the palaces, they burn God's temple to the ground, take all of the Israelites and take them away in exile. Mm. And so in 586, they go into exile. And so 140 years later, here's Nehemiah. And what had happened 70 years after Babylon had conquered Israel, the Persians then conquer the Babylonians. And (laughs) Cyrus says, okay, you know, if you're a Jew and you'd like to go back to your homeland, feel free. And so a, a small contingent of the Jews actually go back to Jerusalem. So it's been decades since they have gone back to Jerusalem. And the beginning of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah thinking, oh, man, I hope they've rebuilt it. I hope, you know, God is going to move again. I hope he's going to do like the prophets have been saying all this time that he's going to restore a kingdom that's going to bring everlasting righteousness. You know, Nehemiah is looking to Jerusalem. 
you know, he doesn't realize it's talking about Jesus, but he's longing for the kingdom of God to return. He's longing for God's favor to again shine on his people. And so this contingent comes back from Jerusalem, comes to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah says, with excitement, you can just imagine the scene, is it rebuilt? Is it rebuilt? Is the temple up or the walls up? And they respond to him, oh man, no, it, uh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, Nehemiah, but the remnant there in this province who survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the walls of Jerusalem still broken down, the gates still destroyed by fire. And in the first chapter, verse four, it says, as soon as, this is Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Mm. And that, that is the posture with which every revival I've ever read about starts. Would it be fair, though, to say that maybe of all the people that are involved in today's story, that maybe Nehemiah was the closest one to being revived on his own? You know, yeah. It sounds, it sounds kind of like he had that tremendous longing for God. That like, He had already sort of set the stage for the Lord to move in his own heart. Totally. I mean, he has this hunger. I mean, you can – it's like when I think of me, I, I grieve the fact that I don't grieve more, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, like I wish I, – because I can look at this world, man, and there's no – nobody would deny this. This world is a very painful, broken, dark place, and it seems to be accelerating with the rate at which it's broken and hurting and everything else. And you just think, man, I wish the Lord would just shine a light, that he would advance his kingdom, that he would do these amazing things, that he would that he would bring forth his gospel, that he would do all these things. Like, I know that would be really, really good for everybody, but what Nehemiah does is when he hears that the darkness has not budged, he just sits and he has it out with God, weeping and mourning and praying and fasting, begging God to move. And and that is, yeah, that's a, that's a work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if we're not grieving, you know, if we're not grieving as we ought to be, that there would be, you know, an advance of the gospel. I think we begin by praying, asking God to give us a sense of grief, you know, that, that we don't long for things um, to be more in line with his design, his beauty. You know, I'm always one that rejects these sort of catchy lines. I think that they're ridiculous, but I'm going to give you a catchy line. If you're not missing something, you're missing something. I mean, that's <laughs> really, that's what we're saying here. The closest thing I can describe to it is this feeling of like an itch that you just can't scratch. It's like it's there. It's in your mind all the time. I'm always aware of the fact that what I really want to do is recapture those early years to return mm-hmm. to the first love thing and and just have that experience again and feel that sense of excitement and wonder and, and really enjoy at everything that's unfolding in front of you. And like that's I have that desire for that. And yet I don't know how to get there. So Mm -hmm. I find myself, you know, at this point where I'm like, okay, we've got to walk through this and see what, you know, what do we do to to beg God for revival? As I hear you talking about Nehemiah, um, I feel like he's probably going to be in the same boat. You know, it's like he's got this deep desire to see things. And yet, Sam, he's wanting things to be restored that didn't exist in his lifetime. 
Yeah, hundreds, hundreds of years. He prior. wants what he's just read about in the Word of God. It's not even something he's experienced before, but he wants to see Jerusalem restored. He wants to see that new Jerusalem just because he's read about it. I mean, that's, to me, that's pretty cool. I mean, he's yeah. obviously, Nehemiah's all in. He's one of them all in kind of guys. <laughs> You know, one of my, I, and you think about like the idea of revival moving in South Florida or Fort Lauderdale, and we kind of think, you know, I, I just don't know that that could happen in the 21st century. We're so cynical. We're so, you know, attached to our comforts. I don't know that that could happen. And I, you know, I remember one of my favorite examples of this comes out of Ben Franklin's autobiography. And Franklin never became a Christian, but he was present. When George Whitfield, who is one of the famous evangelists that set off the Great Awakenings of the 1700s, and Whitfield came, and Franklin writes in his autobiography that when he came, he made the pastors of that day so uncomfortable that none of them would allow him to preach in their in their churches. So he went and had to go preach in a field, and massive crowds went out to hear him. And this is in an era when it's not you know so godly. And Franklin's like. I was amazed that the people liked him because he called them worms and devils and, you know, was pointing out their sins, but then talking about grace. And he says, I was stunned at the response. And, and I'm, this is pretty close to a direct quote, but he says, it went from being as though the whole world was thoughtless or indifferent about religion to where you could not walk through the streets of the town without hearing psalms being sung in every house along the street. Hmm. Now, what is that? Oh, man. Now, you know, <laughs> like, if, if he could do it then, why can't? Of course he could do that in Fort Lauderdale. Now, yeah. when I think about that, when I think about, you know, people turning away from selfishness, caring for the poor, loving Jesus, showing kindness, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, man, I want to live in a world like that. Don't you? I want to live yeah. in a world where people are loved and embraced and hatred is gone and all the divisions and nastiness of this world and the way that it's working right now, I want to see that conquered. I want to see light press in. And I know by reading these stories that have happened in the Scripture and beyond the Scripture, I know that the Spirit of God moves in powerful ways and can do that. What bugs me is I'm not more zealous right now to go and do something about it. Mm. You know, to to move. And it's like, you know, revival doesn't come because Sam gets excited. You know? Yeah. <laughs> not even close. Yeah. But, you know, there's an analogy that my old dean of students at my seminary used to use, and he used to say, you know, you've got to raise the sails. You know, the, the wind can blow, but if you don't have your sails up, it doesn't matter. And so you need to raise your sails and be ready for the wind to blow. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? That means you're in the Word. You're praying. You're seeking to repent. You know, if you don't have grief— you know, if you're not grieving over your sin, at least grieve over the fact that you're not grieving over your sin. You know, yeah. it's it's starting in ways that the Spirit can then move into. I, you know, I do think that um, also that people hear us talk about things like, okay, we grieve over our sin, and there and and that's a, that again is is to some extent that's kind of like a Christian insider term. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, somebody who's not. Uh, not a believer or who hasn't been one for very long, who hasn't gotten the dictionary, the Christian dictionary to understand our terms and how we talk about things, maybe listen to that going, that sounds weird, Sam, grieve mm -hmm. over my sin. Yeah, and when when I talk about grieving of sin, that's not going to be something that somebody who's not a Christian can understand. Like, yeah, right. Because you see God as this this distant, you know, he's off on a cloud somewhere. Why would I be grieved? He's not. He's not that concerned with me. When you become a Christian, you recognize 
the intensity with which God loves you. I, I remember, you know, I've been married for 13 years now, but I remember on our fourth wedding anniversary, Laura and I, we were actually in, in North Carolina. Um, <laughs> As it but, happened. Yeah. It, and so we were went out to dinner, and I thought, man, this is great. You know, this is going to be a wonderful night. And I said, so what was your favorite? what was your favorite part about our fourth year of marriage? And essentially what she said to me, which was totally a surprise to show you how oblivious of a husband I was in this year, she said, I didn't enjoy this fourth year of marriage. And then she basically began describing a year in which I served my own purposes, did my own job, you know, all noble stuff in ministry. And she felt like I had neglected and forgotten her, and she felt lonely. Mm. And when she said that to me, I grieved yeah. that she felt that way. Yeah. And when we talk about grieving over our sin, it's not that I'm looking at a checklist saying, oh, man, I couldn't check that box. It's that I've got a God, a Savior, who loves me so intensely, who desires relationship with me, who wants my affection. And sin, as you've heard me define it before, is this inward bent. It's self-absorption to where I take my eyes off of the Lord and my wife and everybody else that I should be loving well, and I make it all about me. And it's at those moments when I, when I grieve my sin, what I mean to say is I am not giving my Lord the love and affection that he has every right to. Mm. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I've we'll be married 35 years this year. And as I tell people, you know, I'll be married 35 years. And, and I would say that my wife says that she's had 30 of the best years of her life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there. Yeah. You know, and, and that, I think that's a great example, quite frankly, because you you love your wife. I love my yeah. wife. And when I disappoint my wife, I would rather I would rather hurt my I'd rather break a bone. I'd rather something, you know, than just to disappoint my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you disappoint her, and I know your wife is the same way, your wife looks at you and go, but that's okay. And you're like, no, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. It's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Yeah. You know, I've done this. And I, I need you to be angry at me. And when she's not mm-hmm. angry at you, that's worse. Yeah. I want her to yell at me. I want her to hit me with something and get it over with. And instead, she's like, no, no, it's fine. It's okay. I love you. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> but, but there yeah. is, that's the feeling, folks. That's that elevator drop that we're talking about. That's grieving over your sin, you know? Yeah. So there's, a, there's this line in Jeremiah. So right at the time, Jeremiah lives when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And if you go into chapter two of that book, the Lord lays it out perfectly. He says, really, you've just committed two, and they'd committed you know, thousands upon thousands of egregious sins. But when Jeremiah the prophet comes and delivers the message from the Lord, he says, you've really just committed two sins. He says, you have gone for yourself and you've dug yourself cisterns that are broken and can't hold water, these huge tubs, uh, you know, that were cracked and they would drain the water. You've dug them for yourself and you've forsaken the wellspring of living water. And that's what we do as people. And he's, of course, he's saying, you know, in your own efforts, you try to, to live this life on your terms. You do all these efforts like it, they're going to store up water for you and it all's just draining away. It's all meaningless. You're losing it all. And you could come to the spring that never runs out. And so what he's saying is you're looking to the world to satisfy you when I'm here, the spring, and you look right past me. And so if we're talking about why Jerusalem ultimately falls, why Nehemiah's in mourning, when the Lord says, this is why it happened, it's you're looking to the world instead of me. I want relationship with you, and you keep spitting in my face looking elsewhere. It's very relational. Mm -hmm. That's the heart of the Lord. 
So let's get back to our guy, Nehemiah, because we left him <laughs> weeping and mourning <laughs> and fasting and praying before the Lord, before the God of heaven. Um, so, you know, he's crushed by the message that comes back when he hears how things are in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And then he takes action. So, you know, at some point he's going to come back to Jerusalem. So what brings him back to Jerusalem? So right in the beginning of chapter one, and this is going to be an important preface to to how this revival takes place. But in chapter one, verse eight, he goes before the Lord and he's going to call the Lord out on his promise. And it shows you that Nehemiah is a man who studies the word. He knows the word. And so he knows the promises of God. And he says, remember the word talking to God. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And so Nehemiah is calling God out. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You told us that you'd scatter us if we were wicked. You said that way back in the days of Moses, and we're guilty, like we turned from you. And sure enough, you scattered us. But you also said that if we turn back to you, if we return to you and keep your commandments, that you will gather us back to yourself, that you'll show your face to us and and your grace to us again. And so he says, that's the promise I'm calling you on, God. And so he begs, give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of the king. So Nehemiah at this time is a cupbearer. And before we get past that, I want to stop one second here just because there's something in there that really struck me as you were reading it. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. I just I was struck as you were reading that, that that's telling me that you cannot that it doesn't matter how far you are from God, that you can't go too far for God to reach you. It's like. Because that's the other thing that I kind of hear from people, which is, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I know, I know, but I've gone too far. I've done, it, I can't get back. I can't do, revival can reach you even when you are, as it says here, in the uttermost parts of heaven. The mm-hmm. Lord is not bound by distance. He's not bound by, first of all, he's not bound by anything. <laughs> yeah. Let me just say that right up front. He's not bound by anything, but he is ready to retrieve you from wherever you are. Mm-hmm. So for the people who feel like, yeah, I get this revival thing, but you know what? It's too much water under the bridge. No, no, there's not. He says right here, he can reach you from the uttermost parts of heaven. So I'm sorry. Now I was cupbearer to the king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so so what that's telling you, in the ancient world, a king would have a big king, like the king of the Persians, which is the major empire of this time. So he's working under Artaxerxes, who's the Persian king at the time. He is the cupbearer, which the sole job of a cupbearer is to drink wine and possibly die. <laughs> because your job is to test the wine to make sure that it hasn't been poisoned. And so the only person that you give that job is somebody that you totally trust because they're dealing with something that when in the ancient world it was common to poison kings to assassinate them. And so this had to be somebody that you trusted with your life, literally. And so Nehemiah has that kind of an inside position with the Persians. But if you know your scripture, Esther appearing before the king, that's a life and death thing in the Persian world. You weren't allowed to just have an audience for your own purposes in front of the Persians. And so Nehemiah is begging for an end, you know, praying to the Lord for an end. And in this next chapter, 
Artaxerxes looks at Nehemiah and says, well, why are you so downcast? You know, probably sees the tear-stained face and everything else. And Nehemiah says, how can I not be? You know, the the place of my forefathers, Jerusalem, where they're all buried, like it's in ruins. And I'm, I'm devastated. And so Artaxerxes says, well, what do you want for, about this? And Nehemiah prays and says, I want to go back and rebuild. Um, and so Artaxerxes gives him a massive amount of supplies and permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild. It's interesting to me, too, that it says uh, in, the, in chapter 2 here, he sa- Nehemiah says, now I had not been sad in his presence. <laughs> yeah. And that the king then said, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Um, that, you know, let's give the king some credit here. He was perceptive in saying that, you know, mm-hmm. Nehemiah was grieved and upset and, and it wasn't something physical. It was, a, it was a sickness of the heart. It was sadness of the heart. Um, and I, I do think that the natural tendency that we would have in that situation with, you know, if the guy says, why are you sad, would be to immediately jump to what it is I want. You know, mm-hmm. I want to go back and fix it. I want, to, I want to build a city up again. But Nehemiah answered the question, and then he prayed. Um, and that is, you know, it, it, I, again, I think that when it comes to situations like this where we're seeking revival, it, we keep wanting to counter the if there's something wrong, we want to fix it. And, and mm-hmm. here we've got a guy that he clearly knows what it is that he needs to do and wants to do. And the king has just given him an opening. And, and before he starts running this down for the king, <laughs> he stops and he prays. I mean, that to mm-hmm. me is, is powerful. You know, it's a, it's a powerful statement. That's a faithful guy. Of a faithful guy, exactly. He's given his opportunity in front of the king, but the first thing he's going to do is he's going to pray. He's going to make sure that, that, that he's speaking the words that the Lord wants him to, to say. So um, Now, he's, as you say, he gives him all of this stuff. They go to Jerusalem, and when they get to Jerusalem, they, it's, it's not without opposition, right? I mean, Jerusalem at the time is surrounded by people that aren't really happy about the idea that Jerusalem's going to get rebuilt. Yeah, so when, when he gets there, it's, Jerusalem is exactly as he'd heard. It's, and in chapter 2, it says, you know, I, I went to Jerusalem, I was there for three days, and then in the middle of the night of that third day, now remember in, in Hebrew, the day begins in the evening. Right. And so he wakes up on the, the evening, the beginning of that third day, and he spends the night going around the city, and he surveys all of the gates, uh, just riding around the city on this on this donkey or, or whatever animal it would have been. And so he's right. riding around the city, and in the morning, the officials who didn't know where he, he'd gone or what he was doing, all the officials, the nobles, priests, everybody comes forward, and Nehemiah says to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And so in the ancient world, you know, Jerusalem wasn't a threat at this point. A city that doesn't have walls is no threat because you can just ride through and vandalize and steal and yeah. it, it has no protections at all. Walls that have crumbled are hallways, basically. It's an entryway. <laughs> it's another way. Into, yeah. It's a back door into the city, right? That's right. So when they start building those walls, well, all the, their neighbors, Sanballat and Tobias and the Arabs, we see them, you know, in chapter four, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, you know, they start plotting together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And so 
the it's going to take Nehemiah, which is miraculous feat, by the way. Nehemiah and these Israelites, this kind of smaller band of Israelites that's in the city, it takes them fifty-two days to construct these walls, and the whole time they're doing it, they are under the threat of attack from you know very famous in the story Sanballat and Tobias. And we've actually, I'm an archaeological nerd. But they've actually found mass graves over there with a seal from Sanballat's son that's in the mass grave. So this is not a guy that was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's murderous, and they know it. And so they're building this city with absolutely no protections as they're building this walls under the threat. You know, they're receiving these threats from them, and so the the anxiety, the stress, and the day and night labor, like we're told that they're – they're building with one hand, but they've got a sword in the other or a spear in the other. Um, and so you can imagine a labor, you know, hoping that God shows up, hoping God restores, and you work day and night hard, you're, you know, bare knuckles for 52 days. Um, you're exhausted at the end of this. Let me jump in here, though, with this, because, as again, as you were talking through that, I'm looking at these verses, and it says, but when Sanballat and Tobias and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, mm-hmm. and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it, and here was Nehemiah's response, and we prayed to <laughs> our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So they didn't just sit around and pray. They also mm-hmm. got busy and did the, did the common sense thing, which was set a guard for protection. But they did not move. The first reaction was to pray. Um, you know, and again, that goes back to exactly what I was saying before, which is this is a faithful guy. This is a guy mm-hmm. that when he is confronted by something that's going to make you and I go, oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, you know, bunch of guys out there and they're going to be looking for us. Nehemiah's first response is, let's pray. You know, that's yeah. it. They prayed to our God and then they set a guard as protection against them day and night. So, yeah. And so you notice like later down there when you get to to verse 19 and 20, you know, as they're building with a weapon in one hand and the trowel in the other or whatever, it says, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we're separated on the wall far from one another. And the pl- so he's anticipating there's going to be an attack. Everybody's just waiting for it. And he says, and the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, everybody rally to us there. And then he says, our God will fight for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, you've got your weapon. You're going to respond. You're going to be part of this, but it's going to be God who gives the victory. It's, uh, yeah, it tells us that, uh, what, it says that each of the builders had his sword swapped, strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So they, they had guys set up to give the alarm where these guys are the, the sound of the trumpet so there's gonna be people that are when the attack comes i'm gonna blow this horn and people are gonna come help mm-hmm. um i do like this also so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out i mean that's a that's a long hard day so in addition to being faithful people who prayed each time they were dealing with an adversity or a difficult position so that god would carry them through it what we also have though is a group of people who were willing to do just whatever it took you know these these people were not holding anything back and that's the other thing that um you know when people say yeah i've never you know this is the revival thing i just don't think it's possible well 
it's not possible if people allow it to be held back. There are, there are things that mm-hmm. hold back revival. And what we see here from these people in Jerusalem is that they were not letting anything hold them back. If they had to work with a sword strapped to their side while they had their building tools in their hands and a guy standing next to them holding the spear waiting for the <laughs> attack, they were all willing to do that. I mean, they were yeah. not holding anything back. So... You know, if you're if you're making your checklist about things that we're supposed to be, you know, doing, if we're we start with, you should be grieved. You should be grieved for your over your sin and over your over the coldness that you're feeling. You should be grieved for that. You should also be praying. You should be praying through God's word, praying God's word back to Him. But you should be praying, and you should also be ready to do to go all in. You should be ready to do whatever it mm-hmm. is the Lord commands you to do. You do it. You know, and if it's hard, you still do it. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's an amazing thing. So then how did this, how did it conclude? You said 52 days it took them? So it took them 52 days. Um, and at the end of that, they they gather together. And in chapter 8, they come together as kind of this celebration, the consummation of all their labors. And you got to remember they haven't seen the glory of God break out. The temple is still not rebuilt. They just have the walls. Right. So everything that they have laid into this thing, it's like, you know, they were like you said, they were willing to lay down their lives. They gave their, their effort. They're open to attack. They were all in for the hope that God would come back and dwell in the midst of his people in mm. Jerusalem. They're so desperate to see God move that there was nothing they weren't willing to do. They're all in. Mm. Um, and so chapter 8 is when they come together um, to give the most important thing to the Lord. Well, before we jump into chapter 8, I hate to keep doing this, but I, but there was something else that, that we moved past in our prep doc here that I did want to point out. Sure. Because it says that the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, 52 days. And it says, and this is at the end of chapter 6. This is verses 15 and 16 at the end of chapter 6. It reads... And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. One of the other characteristics of the revival is that it is distinctly supernatural. It's the kind of thing that when revival comes, when revival happens, the watching world is going to be aware that this was something that God is doing, you know. So one of the things that people say, well, how do I know if it's how do I know if it's revival? Some of it's just going to be it's obvious, you know. It was obvious to these guys that that God was with these folks in Jerusalem that were rebuilding these walls to the point that when it was done, in spite of all the harassment, it says that these people, their God's enemies, fell greatly in their own esteem. So you know, I mean, which is cool. It is cool. And they, it's, the ethic of this, you think about this in, in the Old Testament, um, it's a little different. Like in the Old Testament, it's the enemies of God that when they see the movement of God being powerful, they're, they're afraid. They're, they look at it with distrust. They, they feel threatened by it. Mm-hmm. But in the New Testament, what happens? You know, and, the, and, then, and these days, they're afraid because God is working among the Israelites, and so therefore that's a threat to us. We're their enemies. But in the and now and now that we have the great commission of Jesus Christ, when the power of God moves in His people, we go to those nations to let them know that God is for them too. Mm. Um, there's a transformation that will happen here. We're not we're not 
necessary. We're not building walls anymore because God reigns over the whole of the globe. I mean, he always has, but now the covenant is clearly established and messengers are being sent to the ends of the earth that God is for every nation. So we set the stage for the the scene itself, which is the walls have been rebuilt. You know, the enemies of God are crestfallen. You know, they're like, dope. You know, they didn't. We didn't. We didn't dissuade them. We didn't stop them. And now look what they've done. But this is where revival is going to break out. So how how does it begin? What what happens here? Nehemiah eight. What what do they do? So remember when he, Nehemiah makes this deal with God way back in chapter one and verse sure, eight. Sure. He says, you know, you, God, you promised that if we were wicked, you would scatter us to the ends of the earth, but that if we kept your commandments, if we obeyed, if we sought after you, that you would bring us back home and you would dwell among us. And so Nehemiah is in chapter 8 at the start of this, he's, he's keeping his end of the deal. It's like, okay, God said he would show his favor on us if we're obedient if we keep his commandments. Well, after 140 years in exile, not a lot of these people know what the commandments are. They haven't mm. been exposed to the books of the law, which are the first five books that Moses wrote, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so now they bring in every single person that's of an age where they can understand this. They bring them into the square before the water gate, which is about where David and Solomon's palace would have been that's now totally ruins. They're standing on the ruins of David and Solomon's palace. And now they're going to bring forth the the high priest who then is going to read from the book of the law. It's a, and it tells us that Ezra read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. There's a church service for you. <laughs> That's my kind of. <laughs> In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. When I was reading through Nehemiah chapter 8, I was struck by the number of times I saw the word understand. It started with, mm. he brought together all of the ones who had the potential to understand. And then it talks about the fact that they had all of these priests and, and folks standing around Ezra to, it, it says, to explain it so that the people would understand. They, uh, the What does ESV says? And they gave the sense, you know, mm-hmm. this is the people understood the reading. They explained it to the people. They explained the law to people. So it's like we brought in these people that had the potential to understand. We read so that they could understand we explained it to them so that they could understand and as it goes on it just keeps coming back through the I mean we're kind of to the end of uh, we're kind of wrapping up here in verse 12 but what it says there is the people went their way eating drinks and portions and to make great rejoicing why because they had understood the words that were declared to them and I was I was struck by that when I was reading it, this idea that these people were rejoicing because they understood the words to them, that it's not just this sort of casual, hey, you know what? Yeah, I, I, they read the Bible at church. Yeah, I yeah. hear people read the Bible. This isn't just the reading of God's word and the yeah, 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 get to the end. These people were eager to yeah. hear the word of God, not just read, but taught but explained and then they gained that understanding of the word of god they gained understanding from the Mm -hmm. law and when that happened they rejoiced greatly so how do you react (laughs) when somebody says and you know our reading today is from are you like please don't let it be more than three verses please i can't do more than three verses today i can't from morning until midday yes from morning (laughs) until midday so i just think that the the you know the the reaction of the people to the word of god was just flat astonishing you know we uh 
our yeah. our theme. Ver- oh, go, go ahead. You can say what you want. I'll get back I, to the I was just going to say, like, the, the heart, you know, they're coming before him, and they want to show God that they're serious. Like, you know, all of them are, are eager, like you're talking about. The ears, it says, are attentive to the book of the law. And verse 4, you see Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. Like, they're being very intentional. They want the word lifted up. They want to give it preeminence. You know, they've got all the priests there. Everybody's ready to explain. And they're all coming together to show with this great heart to show God, like, we're serious. Please come back. Please show your face. You know, give us your favor again. And I think that... that part of that showing that they're serious is that they're taking they're doing what's required to understand to not just mm-hmm. hear but also understand we have as our theme verse we have this second chronicle seven fourteen, which is a it's a really famous verse for people i think that most people that have been around church for any period of time will recognize the verse as soon as i start to read it if my people who are called by my name and now they're ready to finish the sentence humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And when I was, you know, working through this in the personal worship notes for this week for our church, I, I took it as kind of there were, there were four things I saw there. That's like if, if you want to prepare yourself, if you want to know, are you ready for revival? This verse kind of gives us four things to look at. First, humility, mm-hmm. humble themselves. And the second thing is pray. Well, there's no question that Nehemiah was humble, and there's no question that Nehemiah prayed. We've seen both of those things here, just in what we've talked about in the, in the podcast and, today. And one of the things that should be obvious, just as a preface, it's if my people who are called by my name... The nation is not going to be healed by politics and government officials and every other which way. It is my, it's the church that it brings revival, that it brings healing to the land, not government. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> so, and then the, th- the next thing it goes to after pray is, and seek my face, and then finally turn from their wicked ways, this repentance that brings them back. But it's the seek my face phrase that, that caught me this week when I was preparing that, because I was like, what would it mean for me to seek God's face? It's this idea that I want to see his face. I want to be before him. Well, that's metaphorical because obviously I can't see God's face right now. I'm, I'm in Fort Lauderdale and God's in heaven. So I'm not going to be able to see his face. So how do I metaphorically stand before the face of God? How do I see God? How do I seek him out? Well, the answer to that, I believe, is that I turn to his word is that I seek him in his word because I may find God in the words of a friend, in the song that I listen to. I, God can speak to me through all kinds of different mechanisms and, and, and does and will, and I'm not discounting any of that, but what I'm saying is that when it's me that needs to seek God and know that I'm going to find him, the one absolutely incontrovertible place that I will find God is in the pages of his word. Absolutely. You know, in, in the first chapter of John's gospel, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. And so here we have the scriptures that are the word of God. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to know his character and his attributes, the like you said, the one incontrovertible place where you find him is in the scriptures. And, you know, I, I love this verse, you know, when it says to seek his face, the idea behind that, the power in seeing God is that he is so satisfying and so beautiful and so 
um, overwhelming that you can't help but become like him. There's a, a in First John, John's epistle, uh, ver- chapter three, verse two. It says, "Dear friends, now we're children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known." But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And just to, just to translate that, what John is saying is, if you see him, if you understand who he is, it changes you. It will make you like him. Right. It, it makes you into his image more and more so. And so where, where can you do that? Like, I know Jesus, not because I just sit around and imagine something that's, you know, beautiful to me. I, I find him in the word. Uh, you know, I, I've come to know him more and more by looking at his character that's in the scriptures, not my own imagination. So this people who were, uh, they, they were looking to have God come dwell among his people again. They wanted the glory of God to return to Jerusalem. They wanted to be able to keep God's command. They turned back to him. They wanted to keep his command. So they came together. They heard the word of the Lord written. The law from the book of Moses was read to them. And this this part I love, Sam, wh- what was their reaction to it? What What happened to the people when they heard the word of God? Well, first off, they're they're very charismatic to start with. It says, uh, you know, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So there's this great sense of reverence for the word. You know, he opens the book, everybody stands. You know, you just don't, you can't sit in the presence of the word of God. And so then Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God, and the people answered him, amen, amen. And, you know, sorry, Presbyterians, but they lifted... <laughs> <laughs> they lifted their hands. You know, they were they were begging God for this blessing, lifting their hands to the sky. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And here you just sense this desperation, this reverence, this, you know, come, come. And then I'll let you read these names in verse seven. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. So anyway, a bunch of Levites. Exactly. When I was talking about this, <laughs> when, I, when I was talking about this with my wife before we started doing the podcast, I was talking about the, we were going through the chapter we were talking about, I said, and a bunch of names and then the rest of the Levites. <laughs> <laughs> there might be. This, this could be a fun game. Yeah. Uh, Jeshua, anyway. Bonnie, Sherebiah, John, uh, Akub, Sabbatai, Hodiah. Look, in there... Hey, I'd, I'll go with it. Let, uh, yes, uh, Masai, Kaleda, Azariah. I'll go, Azariah looks pretty good. That's I'm, Josabad, that's good. Hanan, I got that. Paliah, and the Levites. <laughs> nice, nice. So, I, made a, so, I made an effort. And, so their job is that they're going through the crowd, and like you talked about earlier, they're helping everybody understand what this means. And so the people are in their places, and they read from the book, from the law of God, and it says clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood. And so what are you expecting at this point? You know, if you're thinking about a church service, you know, we come together, you know, they're all into it. They're raising their hands. They're praising, amen, amen. You're imagining that this is this really joyful worship concert almost, And we get to verse 9, and we see that the favor of God has fallen upon them, but in a way that we don't expect. It says, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were teaching the people, they said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And then you read, you're like, wait, whoa, whoa, where did this come from? Why are we weeping? (laughs) Yeah. And it said, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Mm. And let me, you know, to, to quote something in the earlier conversation, this is where the Lord has come to them. 
and all the things that they should be doing to make the earth beautiful, to advance his kingdom, to show affection toward him. And the Lord has said, I haven't known you. You know, your, your hearts are distant from me. Here's all the ways that I expect you to behave. And all the people are looking, taking personal inventory, and they're destroyed. They realize they fall way short of this. And, and probably, I imagine, to some extent, there's the, the memory of the promise, right, that, that Nehemiah called God out on. It was, you know, if your people turn and come back to you and we obey and keep your commandments, then you'll gather us. Mm. And they've just heard this litany of commandments about what it means to follow after the Lord and true righteousness, and they know there's no chance, there's, we're, we, we fall way far short, and so they're crushed. All this effort, all this trying to win the favor of God, there's no way they can do it. They fall too far short. And then Nehemiah, this I love this, my favorite verse in the whole book. Nehemiah said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Mm. And and let me pause there for a moment. What he's saying is, you know, in the past season for the Israelites, you know, all this, the, the prayers, the efforts, the building, the stressing, the anxiety, everything that we've brought to the table, it's not enough. But don't be grieved because it's not your strength that matters in your relationship with the Lord. It is the joy of the Lord that's your strength. And when we hear that, you know, joy of the Lord, we think, you know, is that like, oh, I've got the joy of the Lord. That's not what it's saying here. It's the Lord's joy, the joy of the Lord. That's your strength. So when you're doing all this, when you're coming before him, when you're seeking to reconcile, when you love him, and these people had clearly shown that they were all in, they sought after him, they loved him, and Nehemiah says, go your way, stop grieving, Because God's joy, God's delight in redeeming you from the place where you are, that is your strength. The character of God is your strength. His delight over you, that's your strength. And so there's so often... When we think of, of revival, we think that, you know, if it's, it's about us. It's about us being good enough. Right, no. right, yeah. The only thing you need for salvation, the only thing you need is need. Mm. Revival works this, much the same way. It's like you need him. You're desperate for him. You can't conjure him up. But it's his delight. That's your strength. And so lean on that. Mm. And then it says that the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. So repeating again, do not be grieved. Mm -hmm. And then the people got the message. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That's the revival cycle. You know, yeah. you, you, you come from this position of having this great desire, this great hunger. You pray and you humble yourself. You go through whatever it is God calls you to go through. And then, you know, you, you seek him in his word. And when you find him there, it's, it can sting sometimes. And yet, God comforts us with those words yeah, of and, grace. And I think, you know, you said it can sting. I would add to that and say it needs to sting. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and this story, do you, do you think this story ends differently if they come before the Lord and they're like, 
yeah, there's the law. I'm good enough. Like, yes, I think it ends differently. <laughs> it ends way differently. It's, it's the fact that they're repentant. You know, when, when David in Psalm 51, he's just committed this horrible act of adultery. He's had somebody killed, and, and he's going before the Lord, and he says, you know, true sacrifice is, is, a, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what gets the attention of God. Mm. That is what he delights in, to know that there's a heart that seeks after him, because he desperately wants you, Right. And so that relationship, you know, this whole story uh, is is a picture of the prodigal son, you know, mm. that parable that Jesus tells. And, and, you know, most of us know that parable, but think about it. Here you have the nation of Israel that has said, you know what, I want your blessings, but I don't want you, God. And so what do they do? They go off in wild living, and they're literally taken to the far country. Does that sound familiar? You know, like the prodigal son, and, and over there, it's there that they're broken, it's there that Nehemiah from the far country is going, I just wish I could come back to my father's house. And, and what happens? He, they come back. So when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, he is the God to whom Nehemiah is crying. He knows what it's like. You know, God knows what it's like to have these sons come back home pleading to be welcomed back home. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? I love this. It's go your way. Eat the fat. What does that bring to mind? It's like, hey, we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a party. You've come home. Here's God's spokesperson speaking to them saying, don't you grieve. We're going to have a party. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to drink sweet wine. Spread it out. Spread the portions to anyone who has nothing. Why? Because this nation that has been dead is alive again. Mm. And it's God's joy. And the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal comes home with nothing but grief and humility. It is the joy of the father. It's the delight of the father who runs to him. That's the prodigal son's strength, trusting the heart of the father to restore him. And guess what? He does. That is the heart of our God. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on this first uh, podcast about the subject of revival. It's not going to be our only podcast on it, though. We're, we're going to be going through this uh, in the church for seven weeks. Uh, we'll be going through this um, as part of our podcast also. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable, that you've, that you've learned something, that maybe this has made you begin to think about how much maybe you desire revival for yourself and for this church if you're part of this church or whatever church you're a part of um, we do uh, encourage you if you're interested in asking us any questions or you have something that you that what we've said today has has sparked some question that you'd like to have answered that you correspond with us we've got an email address that that address is out of water at rio vista church.com uh, also a reminder that you can find out of water on spotify on uh, apple podcasts on google play or you can find it at our website listen to any of the back episodes that you would like at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. So we'll be back next week with more on the subject of revival, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.